Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everybody <laughs> welcome to broadway breakdown uh this is a special day because uh john is not here but we are still doing a regular episode why because we have honorary co-host prescott seymour aka suddenly seymour here with me hi hi i love that you have to think about which name to call me well no so i i <sighs> So, for the sake of um, consistency and dramatic flair, of course, um, which is not present in some of our topics today, oh, uh, I am going to keep you as Sutton, just so that way the listeners yeah. can understand. I think I'm more well known as my drag persona, but I'm not going to put on any. I'm not well, going sure. to put on any airs. Well, for sure, you. nobody goes up to Trixie Mattel on the street and says, "Hey, Brian." They're like, "Hey, Trixie." But if they do, that's I mean, nice. I mean, yeah, good for them. Right. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Uh, Yes, your fans know you as Sutton. All three of them. All. <laughs> Bitch, you got a couple of thousand Instagram followers. I've paid for them. No, I'm just kidding. I've, the, I've never I've, done that. I blew every single one of them. And if that were true, my love life would be a lot more exciting than it yeah. actually is. But this is not me. It's, it's not about me. It's about the work. It's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you truly are a diva for the ages. Am I? Um, to me, anyway. Oh, thank you. Congrats. Uh, and congratulations on being our first guest, not only beyond this pod twice, but three times. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've made it now. You absolutely have. Like, fuck everything else. Uh, fuck Hardware Bar, Puerto Vallarta, <laughs> the <laughs> Metropolitan Opera House, which you were just at. I, was. That w- I mean, that was like your... Po- first of all, okay. Whoa. Sorry. We're getting, we're we're getting, getting all over the place. I have a lot of... You've got a lot of for, thoughts. A lot of thoughts for you, and including a T-H-O-T-S thought, because Ooh. you did the Skivvy show, Rocky Horror Rocky, Rocky Horror Skivvy show, yeah. yeah. Um, where you did a phenomenal lip sync to um, a double feature picture show, but it was to Lauren Molina singing, correct? Yeah, yeah. well, it was it was a three-quarter lip sync, so we opened the show, and yes, I you... played I played the lips, yes. uh, like in the credits, mm-hmm. and uh, Nick and Lauren would take for, uh, take turns singing, and then I came on on the last chorus with him. So I lip-synced and I sang. Yeah, so so I, felt, did. I felt a little bit legitimate. You were, first of all, it was the, it was a very legitimate lip-sync to begin with. Thank you. So don't ever doubt yourself. I'm here for that. Oh, I don't, I then... did, you know, it's a weird thing, because the idea of, like, lip 
syncing to a live voice. It just sound. It, at first, I was like, "Ooh, are people going to be into this?" And mm-hmm. so we got to have a little gimmick with it. So I came on with um, a cape like Frankenfurter, oh, you, and then yeah. uh, lip sync that. And then the big reveal when I started singing was giant lips with yeah. a big tongue in the tongue. Yes, you looked part. exceptional. Um, Thank it was, you. It was a, it was it was an apropos look. It was a ferocious look. It was a fishy look. Speaking of fishy, we'll get to that. Ooh, um, oh yeah. Oh oh yes. Oh oh yes. Hetty. Um, no, just, I. I watched it. I thought it was great. Your you. Instagram game on it. Instagram game on it was fantastic. And specifically, the thought of the day was your photo with Daddy of All Daddies, Tom mm, Hewitt, Mister Tom, Mister Tom Hewitt. Who, uh, if you don't know, if you're listening, and if you don't know, you should know. He was the Broadway uh, Doctor Frankenfurter. Yes, in the and, last revival. Yes, Rocky Hart. And uh, he is a a very sweet, very down to earth, genuine man. But the second he is he is in such good voice. I mean, that mm-hmm. revival was. Almost 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and he sounds so good. He sounds the same. Oh, I've yeah. been doing drag for seven years, and I sound like a fucking lawnmower. You sound like Bianca Del Rio's Foghorn. That's a that, thank you. <laughs> That's what you sound like. Um, no, and I and I watched his performance too. And I mean, he's in great voice, and I've seen him in other shows, and he was in great voice so, then. He's but a like, daddy now. He is such a daddy. Um, but he. He has all these bits when he does. So he did Sweet Transvestite mm-hmm. uh, at the concert, and his version of Sweet Transvestite is second only to Tim Curry, and that's simply because Tim Curry is the original Frankenfurter. Yeah, he's iconic. He's legendary. Tom Hewitt so redefined that role in that song, yes. and came up with all these amazing bits that I yes. love. And he did all of them for the concert. One of my personal favorites is he goes. Uh, I've been making a man <laughs> blonde hair on a tan yeah. and, it, and he did it for the, I was like how dare you remember all of your bits perfectly all of it. it's probably muscle memory because how many times do you think he sang that song oh my god I listened to that recording so much when I was younger that uh, every time I like do something if I make an entrance or if I finish something mm. I like Tom Hewitt I channel Tom, Tom, my inner Tom Hewitt and I just go okay <laughs> okay so for the first show at the Rocky Horror Skippy show I after my number, I came back down to the dressing room and I came in and I just went, okay, I'm done. And he just gave me this look of like, he was like a little bit both freaked out, but yeah. also like, did you just, did you just impersonate me? me? Yeah. I but mean, was, and then I realized what I did. And then even talking about it now, I feel a little bit like a creeper. No, it's iconic. He should be pleased. And <laughs> he's not allowed to be such a wonderfully aging daddy. And get creeped out. He has to just accept it. Oh know? yeah, he was, and you could tell. Like he, watch, watching him watch everybody else sing the songs. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Rocky Horror meant something very mm-hmm. dear to him. So watching him watch like Eden Espinosa, Nick Adams, mm-hmm. and Marissa Rosen sing these songs that are very near and dear to him, you could see him like reminiscing, but also enjoying the new uh, life that yeah. these performers were bringing. It was really fun to that, watch. That's him. that's that's nice. I'm glad that it was clearly a, a good memory for him because that album the re- the revival cast recording of rocky horror <sighs> is pro- is by far and away the best recording of that score you could hope for yeah because it has the energy that you want it has the attitude but it's also so very what broadway has to offer these amazing vocalists and arrangers who come up with these things that still give you the songs but allow the broadway performers to just you know Right. I don't know what to even say. Fly. Well, it's, and that, that's just an testament to uh, Nick Searley and Lauren Molina, mm-hmm. who are the Skippies. Like, they, I went into rehearsal with them, and after, as I'm finishing, Eden Espinosa walks in, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, what are you singing? And she's saying, uh, oh, I'm singing, I'm going home. And then Lauren's like, oh, and she's mashing it up. We're mashing it up with um, Midnight Radio from Hedwig. Uh. And I was like, ah. 
how do you do that? And they did it. So if you haven't seen these videos, there's a great video of Eden singing um, mm-hmm. I'm Going Home and Midnight Radio. And it's, it's a really brilliant mashup. And then once you're done with the videos, go get the Revival cast album. Oh my God, um, yes. I mean, it's got... I mean, you won't get Joan Jett, but... No. <laughs> you, you get Kristen Lee Kelly, who's just as good. Um, and not to throw shade, but it is the last professional recording of Alice Ripley when she had her sideshow voice. Boop, boop. Um, <laughs> just like <laughs> high-belting Alice Ripley, and it's phenomenal. I feel I'm like, I would never tell anyone making a movie musical to watch Moulin Rouge and like take notes. It does everything I hate, and yet I love it. I don't know how to explain it. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I feel like your challenges with John, where you give each other, like, make this a jukebox musical. Sure. I listened to your Whitney Houston. Did you enjoy? Uh, it was it was a treat. <laughs> it was a treat, Matt. It was a treat. Thank um, you. I feel like people, someone just said, okay, here are these songs and make it a musical. Yeah, pretty and, much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. From And from what I understand, that's kind of what we're getting with a lot of jukebox musicals this season. Mm. I'll be seeing Jagged Little Pill later this month. I hear Tina Turner is very good. I've heard she's very good. Uh-huh. Did, uh, did you read the New York Times review for it? I, I Oh, I don't read reviews. Oh, I don't read reviews. <laughs> well, it's actually interesting because... It, I mean, it's very clear. It's Jesse Green, and it's very clear he did not care for the show. Mm. Um, and he doesn't care for jukebox musicals in general. Uh, and he said so when he reviewed the Donna Summer musical. But he makes it a point to not just, like, tear it to pieces. He's right. like, here's why I don't like this and why I don't think it works and why I think jukebox musicals in general are a tough sell. So he just, so he uses the show as an example to explain why it doesn't work. And he says, like, you can find it in entertainment and a concert, but it's not a musical. Right. There's not, um, like, an emotional arc. Yeah, and the songs are very much jammed. And he, like, says, like, these songs are – they try to repurpose all these songs for moments in the story that they were never meant for. So you can maybe say, like, oh, that's, you know, an inventive way to use the song, but it still doesn't work. Right. Um, which I get. And, like, that's part of the joke when we do Jukebox That Musical is we take songs that, like, obviously are never meant for shit like that. Like, so emotional. But someone's going to listen to that, Matt, and they're going to make the Whitney Houston – Jukebox musical based on the plot that you created, assassins and all, and 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 aspiring vets. I just want Philip Asu to earnestly say it on a stage. Let's get one thing straight: I'm not here to make friends, make family, or make lovers. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see that happen. But like, the, yeah, it's funny because that's sort of the the joke with jukebox musicals is these songs that are not meant for that shit, and then you just jam pack it and sometimes yeah. it's done very inventively and other times you're like ugh um, I would like to see Tina I love Adrian Warren I loved yeah. her on the Dreamgirls tour she was the only thing I liked about it oh wow I adored her in Shuffle Along but I also just adored Shuffle Along uh, so I'm ex- excited that this has become like a platform for her to leap from yeah um, but I'm like I'm, jukebox musicals don't super interest me in general no I think uh, like Cher's show was fun mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a, a jukebox uh, and Donna Summer was fun I didn't really um, care for either for different reasons Jersey Boys I think hits a lot I think the music hits a lot of nostalgia points for mm-hmm. people but like Jersey Boys it's a docu-musical you yeah know? well Jersey Boys I think is really the only successful bio jukebox musical mm-hmm. um, I think beautiful gets a lot right and a lot kind of off, but overall succeeds. Jersey Boys worked because nobody really, at that time, the bio jukebox musical 
was a thing, but it hadn't been a successful thing yet. Like you had Lennon, you had Ring of Fire, but they all bombed. Right. So Jersey Boys, they had the benefit of everyone involved who had lived it being open and honest and not worrying about their image so much because no one really thought it would go anywhere. Now it becomes and so and so the show has a lot of dramatic heft to it because there is um, a lot of flawed characters on stage and just a lot of conflict. Shows like The Share Show and The Donna Summer Musical, and I'm sure Tina's the same way, it's a lot of diva worship and here's our protagonist and let's just talk about how amazing they are and the only flaw they ever really have is that for a brief moment in time they picked the wrong lover. Um, otherwise, they did everything fantastically. Right. Um, and like, the, and their uh, obstacle is that nobody believed in them uh, for a while. Then people believed in them. Then they stopped believing in them. Then they believed in them again. Right. I feel like there was a missed opportunity, especially here in 2019 with the Share Show, with a missed opportunity to kind of talk about um, Share's journey mm-hmm. uh, with Chaz. Yeah. There was a, such a big missed there... opportunity there because in the end, you know, it, it took her time to adjust to it because it, it's like yeah. telling your dad you're gay of course a parent a lot of parents react the way they react yeah and here was an opportunity to really tell i would say a very important trans story mm-hmm. and it would have been interesting to see someone like sure who people admire mm-hmm. and idolize to see her growth with that and i think that would have made the story very compelling but does that make it the share show then yeah well and i don't know the share show i don't know what know what i was expecting i will say i give them props in that they had the same premise of summer of the three shares like the three donna summers and you know who came up with the idea first it was a little weird it felt a little too meta like literally share having a conversation with herself with Cher. Be like, yeah. Cher, I got this bitch. Yeah. Okay, Cher, I'm going to help you out. I'm oldest Cher, and this is how it's going to go down, bitch. But see, and I liked the idea of that, but not yeah. the execution. I called it, like, the Donna Summer musical meets Follies. Uh, oh. Because, like, <laughs> these these Cher's who are, who are uh, confronting their past selves, their current selves, you know, their future selves, whatever, and, and it's this whole, like, giant therapy session. You could also call it, like, uh, if... Lady in the Dark were a jukebox musical because oh it's my God. psychoanalysis. But the reason why I didn't like the execution was that there was no clear through line of, you know, who was the share currently speaking right. and who was who or rather who was, you know, what share are we watching and who is confronting who? It became very muddled of like, well, these are three separate shares who don't who have shared experiences, but don't shared experiences huh. but uh are very different entities you don't get the idea that they're all of one person right um and i thought it would have been interesting to have it be all stephanie j block and have her younger selves watching her younger selves from time to time and then try to confront her younger selves but never truly be able to mm-hmm. the way they are in follies like when they finally turn on their ghosts the ghosts don't hear them the ghosts the don't ghost, know they don't interact no they don't know what's ahead like the ghosts can sort of see their present selves, but they can't interact with them. They can't comment on it because what can they do? They're fucking ghosts. They're a flashback, essentially. Exactly. And when the present uh, characters and follies try to confront their ghosts, they don't get any um, uh, closure from it because what can the ghosts do? They're still living in those moments. Right. Uh, So Show tried to do all of that but couldn't. Uh, but I, I, mean, I don't even know how you got to here. We we're talking about jukebox musicals. But um, I know it's 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 a slippery slope. It, jukebox musicals. Yes, and with two gays, it's always just a slippery slope. But I I just found the New York Times review very interesting about 
the Tina musical because I agree with him about a lot of that. And I'm still waiting for the jukebox musical to do that well. Right. Um, and I don't think it ever will well, happen. It's, I, I don't – rock musicals, the style of music, it's very different than your traditional show tune. You're mm-hmm. not going to get the same experience. Like try to take something like Hello, Dolly, and what rock songs do you put – in there mm-hmm. you know and try to get the same nostalgic feeling because i mean to me like something like hello dolly mame sure uh, any jerry herman musical really uh that kind of has that traditional boom chick feeling it's going to be a different feeling than a jukebox musical like jersey boys or the share show yeah you know it's um i mean you're still stu- you're still telling a story but I think the idea of the Broadway musical, I think people like you and me and a lot of people who grow up with loving show tunes mm-hmm. uh, kind of fell in love with that. So we have this idea of what musical theater should be. Now you bring in the jukebox musicals and here's music that, I mean, I didn't necessarily grow up with. I grew up listening to Light FM. And mm-hmm. so, of course, I listened to a lot of, uh, you know, Tina Turner and Celine Dion with my mom in her minivan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but And that's how I got to know all these people um, and their music. But the idea, like, how do you take a song that is supposed to be like one, like three minute story in this song? Mm -hmm. And how do you extend that into a full length musical? Which is why it gets a little muddled, which is why I think your Whitney Houston musical is kind of great. Because it kind of exemplifies that, oh, jukebox musicals don't exactly necessarily work. This is a great song, but it works on its own. Exactly. Not necessarily for a bigger piece like a musical. Absolutely. And I, I don't necessarily have an idea. And that's actually... The whole purpose of the New York Times review is like, what is a musical? And right. can jukebox shows be musicals, in, even just like by definition of that? Um, I don't have like a proper answer for what a musical is. I just ask, take me on a story. And if you right. and like, and if you want to be entered, and we'll get into this later as well, because uh, I think I, we can, t- this is going to come up a lot when we talk about something like the Little Mermaid, Mermaid Live. Live. Yes. Um, and then also into uh, something that you had seen recently because it all it all comes together. But um, I've always said Broadway is, you know, supposed to be the the pinnacle of theaters. That's or rather of of commercial theater. It's supposed to be the corner of commerce and art, and you're supposed to merge the two and create something interesting, or mm-hmm. at least something that people want to see. And musical theater specifically is one of the few American art forms. It's one It's one of the few cultural things that we have created. Right. We, we've created two things here in America. We've created the American musical theater and the cheeseburger. Exactly. So, so that's what we got. And we keep coming up with new ways to uh, improve the cheeseburger, but I've yet to see us truly improve on the musical. Although we've, we've, there are every now, I always say that in a cynical way and then something comes along that makes me go like, oh, I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. I, I mean, I think there are, I don't think we talk about the good things that come in musical theater. No, definitely not enough. Not enough. Um, like I haven't seen Hades Town. I've listened to the recording, but I really like, that makes me like, yeah, excited for the musical theater. Well, so that's, and Hamilton. Well, so that's actually why this all has been in my head lately is I have been writing reviews for these cast albums for a website that'll be actually uh, going live this month. Uh, and I reviewed Hades Town. I reviewed, I had to review the concept album, mm-hmm. the New York Theater Workshop album, and then the Broadway album. And I, I very much enjoyed Hades Town when I saw it on stage. I have issues with it that are just, you know, nothing that I think should detract from people seeing it. Uh, or that's not the right term, but whatever. Uh, the music is gorgeous. It's staged very lo- beautifully. Uh, 
I was not emotionally moved by it. Mm. So, and which is fine. I didn't have to be, but I was a little taken aback when I saw so many people being like, cried my eyes out at Hades Town. What the, like one of those moving experiences I've ever seen. I'm like, great. I don't understand how, but okay, like good for you. Um, And then just on a technical level, the show stops a lot, like a lot of applause button breaks. Mm. And the story is so thin that it just, it needs to keep moving. I've often said they need to take a page from Phantom and just like keep it moving. Yeah. but reviewing the cast album, I was like, this score is really fantastic. It's it's complex, it's layered, but also very listenable, and it's inventive in ways you don't expect, but also easily listening in a lot of ways. It's, it all, it's many beautiful levels. I did recently have to review Pretty Woman the Musical, mm-hmm. um, and I was telling my friend, I was I was like listening it to listening to it to take notes. I found myself halfway through unable to finish sentences, and I I like had trouble finishing sentences and i was like i think i'm getting stupider as i listen to this album oh well by using words like stupider <laughs> stupider yeah stupider <laughs> stupider um funner it's funner oh no um, oh no it, this would be just like senior year except for funner uh yeah i <sighs> i Ooh. yeah are you okay you're, you're i'm not i'm struggling to come up with terms you're hurting i'm hurting i think this is just my take. Please take so it take. So an example for a, sh- for a show like Hades Down that's mm-hmm. had a journey from like the New York Theater Workshop mm-hmm. um, and then to Broadway. I One of my favorite theatrical experiences I had was the off-Broadway production of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Yes. I saw it when it was in the tents uh, down in the Meatpacking District mm-hmm. and it was one of the most incredible theatrical experiences I had. It was intimate. You mm-hmm. were like, it was pretty much restaurant seating yeah and then there were platforms everywhere and they're very environmental very immersive as it's meant to be it's meant to be intimate Mm -hmm. you then you move to broadway to the imperial theater and that is massive yeah so and they did i mean that set was amazing yeah but you lose the intimacy yes theater is intimate and it is hard to create intimate theater with a beautiful love story, tragic love story like Natasha Pierre. Yeah. And then maybe that's the same case with Hades Town, where it requires intimacy. Like there's I don't think there's enough black box. There's no the only like black box kind of theater is Circle in the Square. Yeah. Once on this island was one of my favorite Broadway experiences because was there was intimacy there. Yes. You had intimacy. Um, there's also a f- I feel like there's just a fear of intimacy on Broadway these days um, well because you want well they, I don't think there's a fear of intimacy well with there's musicals more, you, well you want I don't know I don't know if there's a fear of intimacy I mean I just I say this because I mean there and there are always exceptions like Fun Home I saw it many many times and thought it was fantastic yeah and that was a very intimate very personal musical again Circle in the Square yeah. but like even shows like Hamilton which I did love and mm-hmm. I loved it that was a show that actually got better when it got onto Broadway because it was such a big canvas and when they had the space to let it breathe it was really wonderful but I've often said uh, I found I also find Hamilton to be rather over choreographed there are times when well, I that's find Andy block 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 blah, 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 blah. I find so many times when dance in Hamilton is unnecessary and never more so than during its quiet uptown. I'm like, that ensemble has no right to be on that stage. It should, if they were brave, they would have just had it be Philippa Sue and Lin Manuel, Lin Manuel Miranda alone on that stage together and not have everyone on stage moving, being trees on the turntable. I was like, it's that. Well, what not, scene are you talking about? It's right after, spoiler alert, but it's right after Philip dies in the, in the duel. And, they and uh Angelica sings the there's a that I don't remember the words anymore, but it's uh <laughs> there's a something that can dot but bum na 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 there's a sound too powerful to name. Um it's quiet Wait. uptown. It's a it's their 
it's their heartache and their grief of yeah. losing their son, but the growth that they get from from that because they've all their marriage is already broken. And then they are bound together again from the grief of their son dying, right. and it's this beautiful song. But hey, you it, just wanted it to be the two of them, yes. But well, and I'm even okay with like everyone being on stage to watch them. But the song starts, and like ensemble members are being lifted in these beautiful ballet poses to become trees in the park. And I'm like, it's it takes away from the emotional intimacy of that I song see. for me. So that's what I mean when I say fear of intimacy. Sometimes. Because, well, I I think there are scenes there that really, in, especially in Hamilton, where mm-hmm. they do. Um, which is two people on stage. Um, oh, like Burn, when Philip Sue sings yeah. Burn. Like, that's glorious. That's gorgeous, yeah. That's intimate. That succeeds. And I even think something like the King George solos, those are intimate because it's literally just him on stage. Sure. So I don't think there's a fear of intimacy. I still go see... when I Last time I saw Phantom of the Opera, I, was, I still get swept away. That yeah. is a good example. I know, you know, judge me if you will, I love Phantom of the Opera just because it is able to take a big mega musical mm-hmm. and you can still have beautiful intimate moments like one of my favorite scenes is the all i ask of you scene mm-hmm. where they're on top of the paris opera house it's a rooftop and it's literally just the two of them yeah. and you're in the majestic theater with like what 15 1700 people in yeah that? something like that so i don't think there's a fear of intimacy but i think there's a fear to keep people engaged because we live in a very ADD that's, world now that's probably more what i mean yeah that's that's a better wording of it and i agree with you on that yeah. i will say phantom that broadway production fucking works yeah um there's and, a reason why it's 31 years yeah. old. Yeah. Well, and Hal Prince was a master of of that, of no he was a visual, you know, brilliant man, visually brilliant man. He had all these images in his head, but he also knew to keep the show moving, keep the audience yeah. swept on its feet. Because every time you applaud a song, it's a moment to uh, to think about what it is you've just seen. And a moment to think is a moment to deconstruct. And fandom breaks away like the most delicate tapestry you've ever seen, similar to Les Mis. Uh, but if you just sort of take in the whole picture, it is a very wonderful experience. Yeah. And Alperin says, like, I want the audience to be swept up the entire time. Keep it going like a movie. Don't give them time to think. Let them just take in the whole. And then when it's over, yeah. they can deconstruct. Take in the whole. Take in the Let the whole take it in. Uh, but this is also to say, with Phantom and Hamilton, I, you know, or Haiti sound quibbles, small quibbles, whatever. I still admire them for taking chances and doing new oh, things. Yeah. I come to Pretty Woman just to say, and we'll get to talk about this later with our Little Mermaid Live. Um, I really, really hate being told, go in with lowered expectations. Just allow yourself to have fun. Right, have a drink beforehand. Because I say, fuck that. Fuck that. I call bullshit on that. And I call bullshit on any creatives on Broadway or actors on Broadway who are like, I don't understand people who come to see things and 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 criticize. Like, can't you just enjoy it for what it is? And I'm like, can't you just be better? Uh, and I say this because, bro- again, Broadway has been known for over a hundred years to be like the uh, the supposed, supposed and all be all and all be all supposed to be that. And on two sides, you have people paying triple digits to see you Oof. to get something interesting. Um. Did you see the documentary Broadway, The Golden Age? Oh, yeah. Bitch, I got the goddamn DVD. That was me clapping for you. Thank uh, you. Elizabeth Ashley. They, I mean, they have all these actors. If you don't know the documentary, fucking watch it. It's it's great. Yeah, it's actors and writers. From, and they never did a sequel. They have the sequel. It just will never fucking come out. I know. I don't know what it's about. I but, know. Um, it's actors, and, it's actors, directors, what have you, uh, from what's considered the golden age of Broadway from like 1940 to, to like 1960s. Mid-60s, yeah. yeah, to like 1968. Let's say pre, right before Hair, uh, that time. 
And they talk, they tell stories, they talk about shows they were in, the environment and all that. And it's wonderful. And at the end, it, they all are like, it's not like that anymore. And you have some people like Lane Stritch, who was like, the theater is fine, it's thriving. But then you have people like Elizabeth Ashley, who says, you know, people pay far too much money now yeah. to sit in an uncomfortable seat where they can't smoke, drink, touch each other, cop their own feels, you know, do anything. If you're not going to chow. Were they doing that during the golden age? Like, did oh, you yeah. go, did you go see, you know, 42nd street and like, you know, sit in an uncomfortable smoke and touch someone's titty. I don't understand. Yeah. That's the golden age. Bitch. Oh, okay. to which, but I also wanted to be like, Oh, Elizabeth Ashley, you didn't see that performance of legally blonde where someone gave a beach in a, in a, in a box seat. Oh yeah. Is that a story? That's a story. That's a thing. They had to like call sec- the actors called security. Cause they saw it from the stage. They're like someone's getting a beach in the, in the box seat. But all that said, she's like, people wow. pay too much to not, be able to do anything but watch something and you need to give them something um and and she was like you have to challenge them like yeah you can challenge them but also like if you're going to be entertaining like be fucking great at it and i say with something like mamma mia which is like a stupid show it works so hard to not have you work hard like it does the work for you in terms of making sure that everything sort of just fits the way it's supposed to so that way it can be stupid and you can enjoy right um and i'm like i don't accept sloppiness i don't accept uh, poor structure, poor storytelling, um, laziness, anything like that. That I'm like, we we pay far too much, and not only that, you're making me waste two and a half hours of my life that I'll never get back to to uh, do me this disservice, to insult me with with this kind of stuff. And then on top of that, you also have artists who are trying so hard to break through, who have mm-hmm. people like Michael R. Jackson who wrote the brilliant. Uh, uh, I think it's a strange loop. I'm. Oh yes, yes, yes. I was combining that with "World Inside a Loop," two very different shows, but they both have the word "loop" in it. Uh, brilliant writers like him who took so long to finally break out, and even then, his breakouts at Playwrights Horizons—it's not on Broadway—who are trying to do new things, who you know, work three day jobs so that way they can afford to put up a reading in a basement for five people, right. and you have the audacity to do "Pretty Woman" the musical and just copy the screenplay and write lyrics that are just "I can't go back." Something about her, you don't never give up on a dream. Like literally, go fuck yourself. But it comes down to it is harder today because we were so it's so it's so easy to access so many different medias than mm-hmm. it was back in the golden age. It is harder for new composers and new writers to break through because uh, they're not known entities. Sondheim had a fleet of flops before he became sure. the much lauded and appreciated artist that he is today. Um, but Pretty Woman, you say Pretty Woman, it's familiar, it sells. If I want to produce something that's written by Jonathan Reed Gelt... Now, granted, you are going to have heard of Jonathan Reed Gelt. I'm going to have heard of Jonathan Reed Gelt. He has written some beautiful music, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who he is, but it's harder for someone like him to break through because he's not, if you say, okay, here's Pretty Woman the Musical or a song cycle by Jonathan Reed Gelt. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to like, but like it's harder. It's the thing that's in our head right now. I'm thinking about the people who are coming from, say, St. Louis, to come to New York City. If you give the, someone Pretty Woman or JRG, they're probably going to choose Pretty Woman. And that's what the producers are thinking. So it's harder for a... It, it makes me angry. It's And what I'm saying, saying because this makes me angry because Jonathan Reed Gelt, Adam Guan, who is actually getting some really great uh, press right now with mm-hmm. his with Scotlandia. Scotland, yeah. uh, Scotland PA. 
That's what I said. <laughs> I called Scotlandia because I am dyslexic. And you were thinking of Portlandia too, probably. No, I called it. That's what I was. That's how I got there. Jesus Christ, he's gonna kill me. John's uh, gonna kill me. Anyway, uh, John. John's not strong enough to kill anybody. Oh, I know. Isn't that great? But anyway, <laughs> it, it's harder for a lot of writers because there are some good stories that are being produced in these basements. Yeah. That nobody is seeing because no producer wants to take a chance on them because it's about making money. Yeah. You, we are in a business where we don't make money but we have to make money it's yeah. bizarre and, and i get it you know musical all theatrical works now are much more expensive to put on now and to keep running now than they ever were um so gestation periods are much longer we have fewer shows every season because of that it's a whole double-edged sword snake eating its own tail kind of thing where you know it's it's expensive to run the musical so you put on a lot of money to hopefully give the audience like the bang for their buck, but then you also charge them a lot. And and audiences, because they have to spend so much money, they then want to find a short thing. So as you said, they will go to something like Pretty Woman, the musical that seems familiar. But that, then it's but, not good. Yeah, but then and then they good. get angry because they spend so much money yeah, on something that's but then, not good. Yeah, but then for every Pretty Woman, we also have something like Hamilton or Hadestown, which now seem like short things, but at the time were very much a risk. Like Lin-Manuel Miranda was not a nationally known writer with Hamilton. He was known to the theater community because of In the Heights. He was a Tony winner right well but he became a celebrity for writing hamilton right well that's true hamilton was his like a-list breakout but yeah it was in the heights and in the heights had humble beginnings it did um but and that was something it came from the basement so it's not that it's not possible for you know young no, it writers. happens but it, it happens should, it should happen more often is what i am saying i agree with you but think of this also too like lin-manuel miranda is only just recently without i would say in the past five years known to the uh international world stage mm-hmm. but he has been around like Hamilton uh, not Hamilton uh, In the Heights came out in what 2008 yeah. uh, that was 11 years ago now and he was even around before that so it, it it's a shame that people like Lin-Manuel Miranda, like artists like Adam Guan and Jonathan Reed Geld have to wait till their fucking 40s mm-hmm. to like actually our fucking 50s to really make, make it. Yeah. Like, and then that's half of the, I mean, granted, I mean, you're not in this for the fame or the success, but at the same time, that is a long, long road to go down. I don't know where I'm going with this, <laughs> well, but well, it just makes me feel insane. Exactly. Well, two things. That reminds me, um, when Amy Schumer... Uh, broke out with um, train wreck and all this stuff and people were like you're this overnight sensation she was like I worked 10 years to become an overnight sensation she's like I I was working all the time like every day for like over a decade and now I'm an overnight sensation apparently which is true of so many people right um Overnight sensations aren't really a thing unless it's like the viral YouTube world. The other thing is that, and that's the thing people think that if oh I get one viral video, mm-hmm. then uh, my life is yeah. set. And what I agree with, and I agree with you about all that in terms of you know working so hard to get there. And what I'm saying is that the people who are there, and some people get there immediately because of other stuff. Say you know you're a singer songwriter from the '90s, and all of a sudden like they want to write have you write a musical. You have this platform, you know, put in the work. Try shit, try shit out because there are people who would kill to have the platform you have. Right. So. Fucking use it, and not just the writers, like directors. I like, Lord knows, I think Jerry Mitchell's a talented man, but oh, I saw yeah. I saw Pretty Woman, and I was like, literally every every dance move is a step touch or a pivot turn, oh, and I, I and can I handle would, that. <laughs> you, listen, I'll I will take that contract if they would hire me, but also, right. not that I perform anymore, but I'm also just like, come on, dude. But then, come on, to come back to jukebox musicals, it makes me angry. Seeing Pete, not that okay. So Jack Little Pill, sure, coming to Broadway, and I hear it's actually good. Mm-hmm. But Alanis Morissette has, you know, she's a singer songwriter, 
with she didn't have intentions of coming to Broadway. Now she writes, a, she creates a musical that's going immediately to Broadway, mm-hmm. and then there are people. It just it frustrates me. The jukebox musical frustrates. Bringing this yeah. back to jukebox musical musical. because it's familiar. We are we as a society are not willing to take risks because Broadway is so expensive. Theater mm-hmm. is expensive, and it's it's a catch twenty two. We want to see new exciting things, but we're not willing to take risks on up-and-coming writers unless they're familiar. And then you go and see something that's familiar that's disappointing, and then you get angry, and then you blame the musical theater, and then we rant about it on podcasts by two homosexuals. And Twitter. Uh, I will say, Sutton, when you're 22, you always catch. I don't remember 22. That was a long time ago. I don't know about you. But I feel like 22. Uh, anyway, feeling 22. That's I the am line. 35 and feeling so alive. You are so alive. Um, no, I agree with you on all that. I will say on a positive note, because I want to get back to positivity. Yes, I know. We, as well, we, only because we're about to go into some positive stuff than probably some negative rant. stuff. Uh, I don't say, I mean, I don't think this is negative. No, well, I'm all for, well, neg- I'm for negative. I'm not for toxic. Does that make sense? Am I being toxic? No, I don't think either of us. I don't think we're being toxic, but maybe I'll, look, I'll listen to this when I edit it and be like, Holy fuck, these two jaded bitches. Um, I mean, yeah, you could but, look at it like but that. But I've always said on the pod, and you listen, so you've heard me say it many times, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm all for talks of, like, not negative thinking, but negative um, uh, opinions, because you become a smarter person by being able to word your negative thoughts in a way that sound, that's uh, listenable, that's constructive, that's... Not just trashing. Like, trashing feels good in the moment. It's right. Like, like, you know, you trash your room, but no. then you're left with this giant mess in your room. And it's the same thing when you trash something on the internet or if you just, like, berate something over and over again. Like, afterwards, like, well, what did I get out of that besides right. just letting out toxic energy? I think, I guess my, the what I want to leave with people is if there's an opportunity to go see a piece of new theater that's in a basement mm-hmm. with an artist or composer that you've never heard of maybe take that chance yeah is there going to be a chance it's bad maybe but is there a chance it might be brilliant maybe as well but we're not going to know unless you go so i guess my point is not to be toxic or negative but just to say take a chance yeah on people that are not familiar yeah i mean you people can surprise you in some of the best ways Billy, I beg to differ with you. how do you mean you're the top yeah you're an arrow Speaking of lube and making it fit, oh boy. you saw Jonathan Groff on Little Shop of Horrors. I did not see Jonathan Groff. No, you didn't see Jonathan Groff? Who did you see? I saw Gideon Glick's opening night. Oh, that's even better. Uh, Speaking of making it fit. Yeah, hey girl. Hey girl. Um, I did see Little Shop of Horrors. It was... It is everything I love about the off-Broadway theater. Uh, um, for tell couple, me more. Well, we talked about the intimacy. This yeah. theater, the West Side Theater, it's beautifully intimate. It still has... Uh, it's a big theater for an off-Broadway... Yeah. it's like 250 theater. seats, something like that? Pause. I don't, I don't know the exact yeah. number, but it's a traditional proscenium theater. You don't know the exact number. Fuck you. <laughs> um, but you walk in and you are pretty much... In an auditorium that seats maybe 300 people, but the stage is like right there. I was yeah. in, uh, listen, I splurged, Little Shop of uh, Little Shop of Musicals. Little Shop of Horrors is one of my favorite musicals, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of mine as well. And uh, to me, it is a, I think it is an example of a perfect musical mm-hmm. between the book, plot structure, character development, musicality, lyrics, mm-hmm. length, spectacle. Absolutely. It's 
perfect. It is. Um, and this production is, though not perfect, it is glorious. Excellent. Also, I will say, uh, when people say, is it trying to break ground? No. Is it entertaining? Sure. I'm like, okay. Oh, it is absolutely well, enough, entertaining. I, I point to Little Shop of Horrors every time. I was like, if you want to be entertainment, do the work and be well-crafted. Because yeah. Little Shop of Horrors is pure entertainment, but goddamn, is it perfectly crafted. Well, th- thank you, Howard Ashman. <laughs> I could talk about Howard Ashman all day. I, I probably will in a minute. No, yeah. um, um, what do you want to know about the show? What can I tell you everything. about Everything. Tell me everything. Um, tell me about the, the performances. Tell me about... Tammy Blanchard, because uh-huh. I've heard divided things, uh-huh. and I'm sure she's. I will divided, say this divisive. is what I, okay. So let's start with Tammy Blanchard. Tammy Blanchard is a very, very capable actress. She mm-hmm. sounds wonderful, and she's doing her damnedest to create her own interpretation of Audrey. Mm-hmm. Do not go in expecting Ellen Green, and no. in that realm, she succeeds. Great. I did not personally love her performance Mm -hmm. uh i didn't she was good she to me she was not great um she hits the note she hits the beats and she does a fine job okay um i have heard uh from good friends who saw her in previews that her performance is spectacular i have also have heard uh that her performance has um morphed in, in the time that it's been on 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 um on its feet so um so to quote Bernadette Peters in Act Two of Into the Woods, she's not good, she's not bad, she's just nice. Um, so uh, I, I do I do really enjoy her as an actress. She's very um, she's very good at tapping into raw vulnerability. I found yes, and she gets there. That's what I hear. Is that um, that's like what makes her Audrey distinctive. Is that know, she's very much her that. performance in the first few scenes. She was it was like watching a grown up Rizzo from Greece. As Audrey, I know. Go with me on that because she. No, does, I hear you, and that does, sounds amazing. And uh, but and then she does a really nice job, kind of deconstructing like the emotions behind a woman who is trying to stand on her own two feet, but she is being physically beaten and yeah. emotionally drained, and she like does a really good job on that. So she does a fine job, still maintaining her struggle to be an independent woman, but still depending on this man who is beating her mm-hmm. and then realizing that she is, she is worth so much and she is worthy of love. Like seeing mm-hmm. that journey, that is an exciting aspect of oh. her performance. Um, but they're, they're just, they're if little... only we could all go on that journey in life. <laughs> <laughs> am I laughing or am I crying? Um, but it, it, there are just little moments. It, it's like the little idiosyncrasies of her performance that made me go, why are you doing that? Yeah, I get that. You know, um, but that, but even that, even like weird idiosyncrasies, I enjoy for the sake that they're just there. Yeah. I do find so much polished performances to just be a little on the boring side. I like choices and taking chances. To quote Tatiana, choices. I like taking <laughs> chances. Uh, if they don't work, hopefully she learns from the ones that don't work and moves on from there. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when she just when she was announced, I very much was rooting for her. I'm still in her corner. I would like to see it at some point. I, she's good. Um, she's not bad, but no, it just. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me more about other things. Gideon Glick. I saw. I didn't get to see Jonathan Groff. I saw Gideon Glick's opening night, and I think to me. I think he's more suited for the role. Sure. Obviously, Jonathan Groff is the bigger name, but Gideon Glick is so adorable in this role. So mm-hmm. if you're listening to this, and he's only in for two weeks before yeah. Jonathan Groff comes back. So if you get a chance to see him, go see Gideon Glick. Yeah. He is so adorable. And like you root for him. Mm-hmm. You feel for him. He does, he's so he's beautifully vulnerable and, and wonderfully adorkable. Did you see him in either Mockingbird or Significant Other? I didn't see Sign- Significant Other, but I saw Mockingbird, which again, yeah. he's, he was great. He was, he was fantastic in Significant Other. That is 
the only that is one of two times I can say the person who that who wasn't nominated for a Tony that year should have won. Mm. He should have won for a significant other. He wasn't even nominated. Same thing with Patrick Vale uh, this past season with Oklahoma. He was the Judd Fry in Oklahoma. Uh. He wasn't even nominated. And great as Andre DeShields is in Hades Town, and he deserved the Tony in the category of the nominees. Uh, Patrick Vale. If he were nominated, I would have voted for him. So you feel that way for Gideon Glick? With significant other, yes. Um, so, I enjoy him thoroughly. So uh, Gideon Glick is wonderful. Um, oh, I forget his name already, but the man who plays Mushnik, mm-hmm. uh, he's the guy who plays the one of the older, not the king, but the other older guy in Head Over Heels. He was. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I forget yeah. his name. He is. He's wonderful. Mushnik is wonderful. The oh the um the um the Ronettes the the, the urchins. urchins yeah are so fun. Was Christian Borle in the night you saw? Oh, Christian Borle. Oh, yeah. Christian Borle. He is like, he, he is so good. He is able to chew scenery without chewing scenery. Yeah. Like he's chewing the scenery in a sincere way. Every scene, like he, when yeah. he plays Oren Scribello DDS, mm-hmm. he is funny and frightening. And that, mm. that is, that is brilliant. I love um, that. He is, Absolutely having a ball. He plays so many different roles, um, and it's fun just to see him kind of just eat every yeah. piece of scenery up. The, oh, the set is just glorious. Um, very clever uh, how they were able to take a um, Skid Row neighborhood and mm-hmm. it, like open it up, make it feel intimate but vast and big. The puppetry is fantastic. Uh, um, it's just, Two it's, thumbs up, says suddenly Seymour. Two heels thrown in the air and going, Yacht Queen! Billy, I beg to differ with you. Um, <laughs> Howard Ashman, man, uh, I, I talk about it all the time. Man. He he is someone who was just so he was a genius a storyteller. Genius. Yes, and it but it came from a sincere passion for the craft and a deep knowledge of the history. Yes, um, he he is. I so uh, speaking of album reviews, I always had I I had to write a review for. The Broadway cast album of Little Mermaid. And then because I had to write that, I also had to write a review for the soundtrack. Uh, And I described his lyrics as um, unpretentiously smart, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or like unpretentiously witty. Like they are so – or unpretentiously clever, sorry. Because he's such a clever lyricist. And he has a million pop culture references and everything. But it doesn't come from from a place of pretension. It comes from just – sincere love and knowledge and and theatrical know-how um i mean i bring i bring it up every time but smile like the number of references in smile to just song from 80s pop culture icons musical theater references but they all make sense one of my favorite lyrics in the end of act one is all the girls are freaking out because it's the night before the pageant and they've already done preliminaries and they don't know how they're doing and so they're all looking in the mirror and they sing, I wonder what my, what my chances are. I wish I'd look like Terry Gar. Um, <laughs> and, oh, Terry Gar. Uh, back when Terry Gar was a bombshell. Right. Um, so, uh, well, it's actually a triple rhyme because it's, I wonder what my chances are. I wish I'd look like Terry Gar. Uh, it's so bizarre until tomorrow night. Um, it's just so good. Um, and the, the what do they want to see? I'll do it. Oh, who do they want me to be? I'll do it. I want to. Who do they want to see? Snow White or Madonna? It's so, it's just so great. And he was so great. And it's a testament to his genius and his, 
uh, intellect that his career was cut short tragically due to AIDS. Yeah. He died at the age of 40. Mm. But the things that he created have lived on in a way. Little, I mean, Little it, Shop, Beauty and the Beast, and Little Mermaid alone have this enormous legacy. Yeah. Uh, which we will get into in a second. Could you imagine, imagine what he and Alan Menken could have created mm-hmm. if he was still with us? The Disney Renaissance, what it could have been if he had stayed alive. Um, I'm going to tell your listeners, I think we've talked about this before, but if uh, any of your listeners, if uh, you've never seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. it is about the second golden age of Disney, and it focuses a lot on uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and their journey from Little Shop into creating The Little Mermaid mm-hmm. and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Yes. It is a fantastic documentary. If you want to learn more about that journey, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Absolutely. Please do. Um, there is a documentary on Howard Ashman as well that hasn't been released yet. Mm. It's called Howard. And then it also talks about Little Shop and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, Waking Sleeping Beauty is a phenomenal documentary. I It cannot be emphasized enough that if there was no Howard Ashman, we would not have the Disney no, that we know true. today. Yeah. Um, because they, Little Mermaid was going to be the last like hurrah for animation because Disney animation was going out of business. They had been producing bomb after bomb after bomb. They finally had a decent hit with Oliver and Company, but it was sort of looked at as an anomaly. And musicals were on their way out anyway in terms of movie making. And that was that was Billy Joel music. Yeah. Not traditional musical theater songs. Exactly. Um, it, it was not a traditional musical in that sense. Um, it was more of like a... And, oh, some songs by... Oh, uh, Bette Midler's song, Barry Manilow. Mm-hmm. It's, it was more of like a movie with music videos. Yes. That is how... Yes. That is how... Um, have you ever listened to How Did This Get Made, that podcast? Um, oh, no, I have not. It's, it's just a, it's a podcast where they talk about like awful movies and like how did this get made and they talk about teen witch and they're like it's not even a musical it's just like every now and then there are music videos uh because none of the songs it, it, do you know what i mean uh so oliver and company is sort of like that little mermaid was supposed to sort of be like the last traditional disney musical uh, and they were gonna and to like bring it back around she was gonna be a disney princess and all this stuff and it was a hit it was a huge hit they did not see it coming um th- I mean, the the executives at Disney, they banished the animation studio to these trailers. They kicked them out of the building that they had built for them, put them in these trailers in, I think, Santa Barbara. And, you know, it wasn't until they started seeing footage of it, they were like, oh, this is actually good. Let's throw <laughs> some money at you now. Because they were working with, like, the tiniest of budgets. Like, well, oh, now we'll give you an actual budget. Right. And Jody Benson talks all the time, like, up until then – you know, the voice actors on Disney films were not, were not stars. Nobody cared about them. And that was how it was going to be until Disney did like a final test screening for adults and like the finished product. And they're like, oh, this is testing through the roof. We're going to actually have you go out on the road now and like talk about the movie because we think this could be do well. Yeah. yeah. And then they were, and but even on top of that, even before it came out, they're like, this won't do as well financially as Oliver and Company because it's a girl's movie. And then it doubled the box office. Of Oliver and Company, Hello. And, be, and then but also became a pop culture staple. Not even today. I mean, let's get into it since Little we're there. Mer- because now, now we've got Little Mermaid live. Yes, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> highlights, highlights. Yes, you called it Little Mermaid highlights. Little Mermaid semi live. Okay, <laughs> let's just talk about it. Um, okay, d- so. You liked the opening. I did like the opening. Like any gay, I like the opening. Hey girl, hey girl, hey. Uh, I yeah. love a good hand in my opening. 
when uh, when it comes to huge openings, a lot of people think of me. That's that's the headbook line. <laughs> there it is. There it, it is. Comes to huge openings, a lot of people think of me. Uh, yeah. So I knew that there had been these concerts at the Hollywood Bowl for the last couple of years, yes. of like Little Mermaid Live, where they screen the movie, and then every time a musical number happens, they cut away and someone sings with the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic. Yeah, and that. I understand was always sort of pleasant because it was a live event and you're sort of in it together and it's basically like a and you're also hearing a phenomenal orchestra play this yeah. wonderful music exactly and it's it's uh it was sort of um uh paying homage to the film and it, it was it was a glamorized live screening of the film yeah like when you go to Avery Fisher Hall and you see Psycho uh, on screen with the New York Philharmonic playing the score live like there's there's something about that energy in the room it's exciting yes. They took that same mentality and applied it to a live TV special. Right. But with it's, appearances by celebrities. Yeah. To sing some famous songs. I, so we were, you and I were watching a little bit of it before we started. So we tried, pre, uh, so, I'm, she's my You're mother. My, your words. My, fr- my mother, my daughter. Sutton and I both tried to watch the live show after the fact. They've made it very difficult for us. I know. Fuck you, Hulu. Fuck you, Hulu, trying to make me pay so much money you for it. You want $44.95 a month just so I can watch the fucking Little Mermaid live? Not today, Satan. Not today, Sutton. <laughs> Sutton looked at herself in the mirror and she said, not today. Uh, but, every um, day. Every but day. we were able to watch all the performances via YouTube YouTube, and then like other things like that. And then we watched the beginning of the whole broadcast just now on a TV just to get the idea of sort of how it was flowing. In so yeah, out. I've watched the, I've watched all the songs via YouTube, Same. but like, I guess I didn't need to watch the, the whole show because the whole show is the movie. Yeah. So you splice in John Stamos and, and Queen Latifah and, Oh, say her name for me again. Um, uh, re- no, it's, Auli'i. Auli'i. Oh, no, no, it's, it's Au. It's Auli'i. Auli'i. Uh, Corvolio. Corvette. Corvette. God damn it. I, no, I we had we a, had this. We had this. We had it. We like we looked it up to discuss Moana. It. We love Mo- Moana. We love Moana. It's uh, Auli'i Crevalio. Crevalio. Auli'i Crevalio. Um, and you had her. You had uh, Graham, I think is his name. Graham Phillips. Uh, as Golden Prince Eric. Grams now. Golden Grams now. He was good. He was good. He's a musical theater guy. Uh, he's now known from The Good Wife. He played Alicia Florek's annoying son. Uh, not his fault. The character was annoying. Yeah. He, I liked him a lot. Um, yeah. He, they had him sing her voice and duet it if only, because they also included some so- songs from the Broadway show. Right. And I told you, I don't like really any of them. But uh, he did a very good job. Yes. Um, People were raving about Queen Latifah online and I watched her Okay, can we talk? So here, can I give you my two cents? Please do. She did a good job. She, sure. She needed one more rehearsal because though that song is a it's a patter song. Yeah, it's a patter song, and there's a lot of words. Throw on top of that, she's got this very complicated dress with an, the entrance when she comes down from the fly. That was cool. The mm-hmm. reveal out of the octopus object was cool in the gown but it was complicated to move in and to me watching her she was doing a fine job did she muddle a couple words yes 
but I could see see the wheels turning as she's performing. Mm -hmm. And with a patter song like that, you got to know every single moment. You got to know it like the back of your hand. And to me, it looked like I got to remember these words. I got to hit my mark. I got to get through this dress. She needed like one more rehearsal. I would give her two, one for tech and one for like yeah, character choices. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah. But- she needed a rehearsal where she tried out every single choice you could make and like really get the words under her belt and have a director be like, great, keep this, keep this, keep this. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think, and I don't blame her. I thought she did a good job. She's a talented woman. I blame the executives for not wanting to pay for the time yeah. to give them one or two more rehearsals just because if you're going to do something that massive mm-hmm. and if you're going to make them strut all the way down from center stage to down to the giant ramp to make it back with all the fireworks mm-hmm. and pyrotechnics, which was cool. Sure. But give them some goddamn more rehearsal, please, just so we can have a fluid performance. Um. Yeah, it's... She sounded great, I thought. Yeah. I also... The live presentation was tricky for me because a song like Poor Unfortunate Souls is such... It's a complex song. It's a patter song, as you said. It is... It is... If Howard, if Harold Hill were a Disney villain, Poor Unfortunate totally. Souls is his song because it's a, the song of a con artist. She's pulling a con, um, and the whole point of the song is she just needs Ariel to be desperate and vulnerable enough for three seconds to make a bad decision. Which I I always emphasize this: the movie is very aware that giving up her voice is a bad decision, and even Ariel's aware. If you look at the animation of the song when she signs her name, she can't even look at herself signing the contract. She's so like, she knows it's, it's desperate. Not right. She's, She's desperate. desperate, and the whole and the whole thing that the movie does that I love is that it really tells the story of how does someone get so desperate that they think they have no other option but to give lose something up like that, and something that they are are aware is special to them, and the movie is aware is special to them. Um, you know what brings someone to that breaking point, and that is. That is a wonderful way that the movie tells that story. And the animation of that scene is so incredible because you, that entire song, you see how uncomfortable Ariel is. She doesn't trust Ursula for a second. She's not thinking, what a great deal or what a, what well, a lovely being, person. She's being seduced. Yeah. And, and being not played, played in the sense that, you know, Ursula is not lying to her. She's not uh, telling her anything false. She's just pushing the right buttons, knowing what she knows about Ariel's wants and needs and where she's vulnerable and how she's feeling in that moment. And she's coming in and she's taking advantage. And I would say of a four-minute song, like I said earlier, of a four-minute song, Ariel isn't budging for three minutes and 52 seconds of it. It's just eight seconds towards the end when she she doesn't see clearly and she does it. And that is all that... She, it's a moment where she's in over her head because mm-hmm. she makes the choice to go there. Yeah. And the second she enters, she's like, I've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. I've made a mistake. But then she does it anyway. Yeah. So. And that also comes from being young and uh, juvenile and headstrong. And we see, and that's one of the brilliant things. And cocksure. Things. And cocksure. That's one of the brilliant things about the movie is they showed it in the in the broadcast, although I need to emphasize right here, right now, they do cut things in the movie. Even though they show it in the movie, they do cut some stuff. They oh, yeah. Times. Um, I was telling Sutton watching the opening. So when they do, when I say the opening, I mean Fathoms Below. They did the Broadway version of Fathoms Below, and it's very so you think you can dance. You know, everyone at industry is on cocaine and living their lives, and it's fun. It sounds fun. like Tuesday. Sounds like a Tuesday, and it's fun for what it is. Um, and then they go into the opening credits, um, but they cut it in half. Which, for timing purposes, I understand, but it is one of the most beautiful orchestral pieces in my mind. 
and I find cutting a single moment of it to be sacrilege. <laughs> but that's it's just it's just, it's just so perfectly crafted. It builds. It's orchestrated and mixed so beautifully with the vocals. I mean, every time I listen to it, I find something new. I didn't know for the realize for the longest time that the or that the vocal background singers of that of that track are humming for like the entire first half of the song before you even like hear them mm. sing a vowel. They're just giving a light hum, which gives it this mystical element to it. But that's neither here nor there. Um, they didn't do that in the live production. They did not do that in live production. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, in terms of Poor Unfortunate Souls with Ariel, uh, we see in the beginning with when Ariel's finding the fork, the dingle hopper, and she gets in trouble with the shark with Flounder. Like, Ariel, it's not that so much that she's brave. She's brave, but she's also young and oblivious to danger, we see. Like, she's aware that sharks are around, but, like, she's so rambunctious and so um, uh, has such tunnel vision for the things that she wants that she is blindsided by the dangers around her sometimes because right. she's like, oh, great, a fork on a ship, on a, a, a wrecked ship in the bottom of the ocean. I'll go grab it. Whereas her, you know, friend Flounder's like, there, you know, there are sharks. There are sharks around, and like Ariel's aware, but she doesn't even realize there's a shark behind her because she's so engaged by this fork. And that's sort of the same mentality in Poor Unfortunate Souls. Like, she's aware of the danger, but all it takes is those eight seconds where she's like, "Fuck it, I made a bad decision. I'm gonna make another one." Because sometimes you just gotta blow things up to get what you want. Right. Um. And that's yeah. how true to life is that we all have done it, done it before. Oh, yeah? It's why she's my favorite Disney princess. She is flawed. She's a flawed human being or a flawed mermaid, I suppose. But that's why I relate to her. I don't, I, we can idolize characters like Moana or Mulan who are these really strong. Was you, were you groaning or was that your stomach? No, it was my stomach. I'm, okay. I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we're both hungry, bitch. That's gay rights. But, um, no, we can idolize these uh, Disney heroines that are strong, but like kind of also faultless at the same time and flawless. But I can't necessarily relate to them. I relate to Ariel. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call her uh, an idol in the sense of like, or like a role model in the sense of do everything this girl did, but rather learn from her mistakes like she did. Right. Because, um, you know, that's how we grow as people. And that's what I love about the movie. And that's what Howard Ashman understood. Right. Do you know what I mean? But you didn't like that. You didn't like. Aulali, oh God, how to say her uh, name again? Aulali I don't blame myself for not liking her. Um, or her, I, I'm sorry, actually, that was that was not what I was saying. <laughs> I don't her, blame myself, myself for, for not, not liking her. <laughs> not what I meant to say. Well, I really am like losing it and hungry. Would you no, like I, some coffee? Thank you. I don't blame her for me not liking her performance. I blame. It's hard. Um, it's I hard. think she was on a h- fucking harness. There, uh, yeah, th- that's the thing. Singing part of your world. There's no sugar in there, by the way. Thank um, you. It was watching her sing uh, "Part of Your World." She sounded lovely, mm-hmm. um, but again, you're you're. It, it's it's so hard to stage the Little Mermaid because mm-hmm. a you're underwater, and like I couldn't help but think, okay, they brought her up, they flew her, and she was singing. She did a good job for singing in a harness. Yeah, she ain't no pink, but she sang well for singing in a harness that was flying her over people. She needs to go to. Uh, harness school har- Harness school Yeah or say, <laughs> Harness singing school go, go go to the Eagle On a Friday night girl The gays will teach you How to get breast support In a harness Girl uh, But she did a fine job But more than that It's not so much Her performance The idea of staging A musical underwater If you watch the film again The attention to detail mm-hmm. Like my, I was focused on 
her hair because when Ariel is singing in the film, uh, part of your world, the hair is underwater. So of course mm-hmm. it's going to be floating all over the place. Yeah. And we are, I mean, granted, you, you can't judge, you can't say, okay, we're going to attach a bunch of different strings on her wig to make mm-hmm. it look like she's underwater. You're not going to do that. No. But it does take you out of the world for a second because I'm not focusing on, um, I'm not focusing on Ali, Ali, Jesus Christ. Uh, Ali Cravalho's <laughs> performance. I'm focusing, so it's, it, they're already doomed for failure yeah. because you're you can't have those fine little details that the film of course animation um but she sounded gr- she sounded good um yeah i mean for were... singing in a harness over people yes i can't do it actually no. i, I ha- i've played peter pan in my past but I've done th- but here's my point <laughs> to bring up peter pan we have a point do we i don't know if they could make peter pan live with mary martin successful why can't we do that today with our live productions? Because there's nobody really who knows how, um, in my personal opinion. And as we were saying earlier, with so much money at stake, people often play it safe and don't take chances. Or they go for broke and go super gaudy. Right. I called this present uh, this live presentation Dragcon Underwater. It was just, it was very bright colors. Right. It was flashy, but also like sloppy and didn't make a lot of sense. But it was also fun. The thing is, these live productions are definitely asking the audience to absolutely suspend your disbelief mm-hmm. and go on this journey. Like live, there's this idea that live, it, there's going to be problems. And yeah, there's going to be problems. But like, if you actually get really good performers and I'm going to talk about John Stamos in a second. <laughs> Sorry. I was just the and I'm going to get to John Stamos in a second. You're not going to have I thought Arlili Carvalho did a fine job. That's the best you said it so far. Thank you. <laughs> I thought Queen Latifah did a fine job because, sure. you know, these are trained singers who have probably I I don't know if Queen Latifah has actually done a stage musical before. I don't think so. I, I think if we've learned anything, if anybody should learn anything about watching these live productions, is that it, you have to be a fucking athlete to do a goddamn stage musical. Yeah. Now John Stamos <laughs> as Chef Louie. It, though charming and silly, a singer... He hits the notes, but by the he is winded. Oh, yeah. Watch him again on the he is winded, and there's nothing more heartbreaking to me than watching uh, someone who I'm in love with mm-hmm. suffer through a song because he was winded. They're asking him to run around, and you, you girl, you got to be trained to do that shit. Yeah, like if you got someone, say like Danny Burstein or Brad Oscar. They would have been all over that stage in full voice, singing brilliantly because yeah. they know what they need to do in terms of breath support and physicality. John Stamos is a film actor and TV actor, and I'm not saying all film TV actors are going to be bad in a musical. I'm saying most of them are going to be a flop. Yeah, and that goes back to my point. Take a risk on someone like Brad Oscar, who might not be as well known as John Stamos. Well, uh, but yeah. I, I just don't, that, and that's where people. Um, then people could compl- like here we are yeah. complaining about yeah. it. Well, give give America the opportunity to discover some of these people. Um, I mean, you have this amazing platform, this huge platform, and there's so much talent that you know, not even undiscovered, like tried and true Broadway people who you've seen be amazing. Like, give them a platform to show the rest of the world. It's all it's telling that whenever there's a live musical, it's always the Broadway actors that get hired in the smaller roles that get the best reactions from people. 
Like, yeah. Like Sound of Music Live, Laura Benanti was the one that everyone oh, was talking about. Yes. Um, yes. Peter Pan Live, everyone was talking about Kelly O'Hara. And, um, oh, and Christian Borle, I thought, really saved Peter Pan oh, Live. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and Christian Borle has now had this amazing TV career. And that, yeah. that comes from getting these opportunities. Uh, I've talked about it before with John. Live musicals in general, now anyway, are basically doomed to fail. Um, and I don't like that that's the expectation. It's not, I mean, I think, I don't, I understand people doing the hate watching thing, but that comes from... Uh, Social media. Yeah, and that comes from people wanting to show how smart they are and thus tearing things down and turning things into memes. And I'm like, you're you're a smart ass. You're not smart. Right. Um, I Like, I'm not here, I don't think either of us are here to, like, tear down Little Mermaid Live. No. I just think it, like, you have you have potential to make something really, really great. Mm-hmm. And um, if only Howard Ashman were alive today, because it, makes I, sad. it, do, it does, right? Because he probably would have asked well, them to do well, well, I, more. I, I do. Well, I mean, <laughs> and it's in, we can always, you know, uh, uh, dream what could have been. Maybe like if he stayed alive, he could have crashed and burned. Some people like have had these amazing starts of careers and then burn out right. afterwards. I don't think that's the case with him because he was just so on top of his craft and what he was doing, what it was about. Um, he also could have been like, I don't want to have any part in a little mermaid live because I don't think you can stage the show. Right. Um, and then they would have given it to someone else who was like, I'll take the paycheck, but I don't know. And that's what it comes down to. People yeah. just, it's a job and people are getting yeah. paid. I think it, people are getting paid and it is a job. Little mermaid. I'm waiting for somebody to Bring it down to like Peter and the Star Catcher level of theatricality of right. like where it's all implication. So good. And we just understand that where we are based off of like a light cue. People or are imaginative. Yeah. Let them use their imagination. You don't have to force feed. No. If you give an audience the opportunity and you nudge them in that direction, they can be imaginative and they can be intelligent and they can push their boundaries. But, you know, as I, as I said, like something like, say, M- Mamma Mia, a terrible example, but still, you know, you have to do the work if you want the audience to get on the same level that you want them to be. Right. And that comes from being a complex show to a simple show. I just I just had the thought, oh, I want like a, a stripped down production of Mamma Mia that's directed by John Doyle and the actor. <laughs> <laughs> the, the actors play the instruments. They all look, all look out at the audience the entire time. Exactly. Uh, ex- exactly. The winner takes it all is just on a kazoo. <laughs> um, I can't do a kazoo, but uh, you get the idea. <laughs> is that your kazoo? That's not kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I, like, I, I actually have this vision in my head for an immersive production of Little Mermaid, and it would basically just be a stage version of the movie. Um, with like tweaks here and there, I would love to stage it. So, um, have you ever been to the frying pan? It's that bar that's on a boat. Um, I have not, on, but I've on, heard. Yeah, it's on the Hudson River. It's a bar that's on a boat. Uh, there's a smaller boat next to it that um, I once did a production of something called Shakespeare in the Pub in, where you did like a Shakespeare play in a bar, and it would look. It was. It's this beautiful like. Uh, it's what's the word I'm looking for? Like. Uh, sailors pub or something like that. Do you okay. know what I'm talking about? I don't know like the right term for it, yeah. but um, it, like a place where like they do sea shanties, like you know where old sailors like get a pint after <laughs> uh, in port or something like that. That kind of like that kind of bar 
where there's netting and all this stuff. I would love to do an immersive production of Little Mermaid in that setting. With, where you take them out on a boat and then a, the storm happens and then yeah. you, you put, you put well, scuba gear on them and you take them down under the sea. Exactly. No, but a bar that had a... a a scenic design like Natasha and Pierre that is immersive that gives you that idea of you are in like a sailor's bar or a sailor's pub or whatever they're called. I would someone please DM me the name for this shit. I don't actually know the term, but that kind of environment where people are at tables, people are at the bar. It's fun and it's inventive and it's almost childlike in its simplicity, but that's, that's where something like little mermaid. I feel like we should go back to if we're going towards nostalgia, don't give me Las Vegas budget. Right. Cause then it just feels false. And it is, a very simple story at the end right. of the day. And when you just make it over the top, it just feels weird. And then you have puppets like the the flounder that doesn't move. It doesn't they did not call the Jim Henson company for this Little Mermaid Live, I'll tell you that no, much. No. They no, they got the people who were fired from the Jim Henson company. Boop, boop. For a reason. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, honestly, if you're gonna restage I love the Little Mermaid. I think all of us love the Little Mermaid. Yes. And if they ever bring it back to Broadway, just call Fucking Julie Taymor. Yeah. Don't let her Spider-Man it. No. Just let her Lion King it. Let her simplify it. Let her make some funky puppets and Little Mermaid Lion King the shit out of that. Give Julie Taymor a $6 million budget and say, make it work. I can do that. And she will. <laughs> I've got $6 million yeah. to spend. Well, she, there was like that whole thing with Spider-Man ended and she ended up doing Midsummer Night Stream at, I think, at BAM or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like a $1 million budget, which is huge for BAM, but, you know, minuscule for her. And everybody's like, oh, she can do things that aren't $90 million. Uh, she is an inventive uh, woman. But, like, honestly, what what is what have we talked about a couple times with, uh, like, Little Mermaid? You said Disney gave the animation studios very little money to make mm-hmm. this money uh, that make this movie, and they made something brilliant. Because they had to, yeah. When, Julie when- Taymor had... X amount of million dollars to make Midsummer Night's Dream, and she made something brilliant. Yeah. So, like, limitations. Yeah, you throwing, can, throwing you money can, does problem. You can make magic with limitations. Yeah. Well, did you ever watch Crazy Ex Girlfriend? You know, I have not. It's one, it's a long story. I've avoided it because. It's, it's it's not important. It, it's not. I really enjoyed most of it. It's not the kind of show I'm like, everyone has to see it. But I bring it up because Rachel Bloom, who created and starred in it, the show was was uh, originally commissioned by Showtime. Like, that was what it was going to be for. And then Showtime dropped it after they saw the pilot. So they then got picked up by the CW and had to do all these edits on the pilot. But Rachel Loom says getting picked up by the CW by a network was actually the best thing that could have happened to them because of all these restrictions you have for network TV. They had to think outside the box in terms of storytelling. How do we say this without actually saying it? Right. Because network won't let us actually say it. And it makes you so much more creative that way. Yeah. Um. I mean, I don't. I think having limits is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it it forces you to pick your creativity apart, and right. that is something that I wish more people were doing. Because then people are like, "Don't limit me! I, I endless endless possibilities." It's like, yeah, sure, in I theory. Mean, it, like we've learned from Alphaba, when mm-hmm. you're limited, you can defy gravity. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna see myself out the door. You now. go see yourself out the door. Um, on that note, I think we will see ourselves out the door. We've been recording for a while. This actually isn't our longest recording, but um, um, well, what else can we talk about? Not tell me how. Pretty so I am. okay, so Little Mermaid live. Yeah. A, a for effort. Mm-mm. I would say I will give A for effort for the performers. The technicality, the puppetry, except the mm. flounder. I, yeah. I the Ursula puppetry was really really cool. Well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a B plus for a, for effort because Shaggy did not look like he tried. 
But beyond that, yeah. Um, but oh, I, an A for John Stamos saying Prince Albert mm-hmm. instead of Prince Eric, um, which was totally planned by him. I say absolutely. Uh, I give credit where it's due to the people who tried. There was some very. I liked how they incorporated the audiences sometimes, like making them the ocean at the opening. Yeah, that was kind of cool. They turned on. Uh, they had them. They gave them all like little lamps for kiss the girl. Although a butterfly did hit. Auli'i Cravalho in the face. <laughs> oh my god, um, we're gonna get so many angry uh, letters. I'm giving a boot to her for having a name I don't like. Um, That's not her fault. Can I? Ca- it's not her fault. But like, can I just call you Cynthia? Oh, ooh, Cynthia, girl. Um, <laughs> I think this is like a C plus live experience, maybe, because oh. there were good moments. I mean, like every live production, there's gonna be good moments and bad moments. I honestly, I thought this was not the best live, but no. it was not the worst live. I think the best live production I've seen was probably Jesus Christ Superstar. I think they yeah. did a really good job with that. I think the worst one, uh, yeah, I think just Christopher Walken and Peter, Peter Pan. Pan. I think Peter that, Pan was was very awful and but the, at the same time the orchestrations i i yeah. got that recording just for the you orchestrations know, i would also i would put rent up there as well i thought rent was really poorly uh executed and i but i give them props at least rent that they tried to go the theatrical route of making it feel like more of a stage show than like like we're on the actual street uh but just the overall effect not so much yeah to me rent i couldn't watch rent because it's just so Anti what rent stands for. Yes. Um, and <laughs> establishment, establishment. Yes. Watch the establishment put on a show about anti-establishment. Exactly, right? Like what? When, it, when we really should have been rooting for Benny the whole time. Pay your rent. Yeah. Be a fucking adult person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> half, the, half the cast coming from privileged households and just choosing not to pay rent and be a starving oh artist. I'm like, God. I've, John and I talked about this when we reviewed Rent Live last time, but the best character in the whole thing is the homeless woman who calls out Mark for filming her and turning her poverty into his art. Yeah. And I'm like, but, but the show then doesn't have them learn from that experience and have them like, Oh, maybe we should like reflect on the choices we've made that brought us here. Like, cause some people don't choose to be starving. The system works against them. Instead this happens. And then they go, Oh, New York city. And it's like, no bitch. Right. This is a learning moment. Take it in. Bro, but, you know, it was 1996. We didn't know any better back then. Yes, it we was didn't... the Clinton years. It know. was the 90s. It was the 90s. Nobody knew. I would say that's the that's the um, slogan for the 90s. It's the 90s. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I mean, look at the clothing choices. Look at the music we were listening to. Oh, God. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Where's their jukebox musical? I'm... Give it away now. I will. I will. <laughs> I will write that for you. Oh, um, there's your challenge. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Peppers jukebox. jukebox musical. Give it away now. The Red Hot Chili Give it away now. No, actually, you know what it should be? It should be, did you remember that movie Sausage Movie? Sausage Party? Sausage yeah. Party. Yes, yes, yes. Th- that it should be Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Sausage Party, the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> jukebox musical. I will have to make that happen. Um, okay, so <laughs> we'll, let's, let's just wrap this shit up. Uh Sudden, where can people find you on social medias? You can find me on all the social media platforms on Instagram at Sutton Lee Seymour, S-U-T-T-O-N-L-E-E. Just look for Sutton Foster, and I am the bitch underneath her. Aren't um, we all? I know. I'm on Twitter, but I'm barely on Twitter. But yeah. you can find me at the Sutton Lee because Twitter has this weird thing where, like, I can I can't write my full name. Yeah, Sutton Lee Seymour. I'm not like it gets to the M O U R at the end of Seymour, yeah. and I can't get the R in. So oh. just the Sutton Lee. So, and Facebook because Sutton Lee Seymour. 
<laughs> hey, I'm suddenly Simo, yo. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. And then Facebook Sutton has her own uh, Facebook account. I got a fan page. I've got a personal yeah. page. I'm on I'm, all of it because I am a whore. Yes, you very much are. Speaking of being a whore, I'm on Instagram uh, at Matt Koplik, M-A-T-T-K-O-P-L-I-K. You can find John Miscavige on Instagram as well. And Twitter. That's where he's probably best seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't see his face. Just see his words. Mm. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and now Spotify. Ooh, Spotify. We're on Spotify Ooh. now, girl. Yeah. Um, and not that that's anything special. You just have to apply. But still, Spotify. Shh, details, details. 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 Uh, Sutton, who would you like to have us close out today? I would like to take this moment, by the way. Last week, we had Sherry Renee Scott close us out because I thought we hadn't had her close us out before. She had closed us out before. I apologize with Brett Schuford's episode. So apologies for that, guys. She now closed us out twice. I think... In honor of the Little Mermaid Live, we should close out with Cynthia. Li- <laughs> with Cynthia. Arlie Cravalho. Okay. I might ask that we have her sing Moana for well, us. Well, that's the yeah. intent because the intent. she sounds so she good. Sounds great as Moana. So good. Yeah. Well, she doesn't have a harness flying her up to the roof while she's going upside down trying to sing. I guess the lesson here is if you're going to sing with a harness and fly through the air, Take a tip from Pink and just train and just be, since yeah. you're at 14 years old. Yeah, take the time to learn how to do it properly. Go to Cirque school, goddammit. Yes, <laughs> that is what I have to say. Or, or like, just study up on my favorite twink, Kathy Rigby. She can sing in a... <laughs> I'll give it to you. <laughs> oh, I got you. Fucking did. Oh my god. That's the second time someone's like really got me on this show. The other was uh, Charlotte Malfi calling Mary Testa Mary Titty fucking Testa. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking died. Um yeah. Uh Kathy Rigby, we could have her close us out one day. Not Ooh, today though. Not today. Not today, Sutton. Not today, Sutton. Today it's Aulili Cravalho. Otherwise known as Cynthia. Oh, Cynthia. Uh Sutton, this has been a pleasure. The pleasure uh, is yours, thank you. You're welcome. Thank I've you. I've had an honor. It's been a great time. It's been a great time with me. Um until next time, guys, this is the Broadway Breakdown. Take us away, Auli'i. Hit it! She is Moana. Moana. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply